Well, this morning we are starting a three-part sermon series on standing firm in reference to societal justice, or better put, loving people biblically. These three sermons are somewhat out of the norm for us because they are topical in nature, uh, so they will be slightly different from what you guys are accustomed to. Um, they are really a single whole message, and yet because of length, needed to be broken up into three parts. So after hearing just one sermon, some of you might feel like it is incomplete. I agree. I agree. I just couldn't avoid it. Uh, my overall desire in this series, and I believe God's overall desire for these messages, is that your love would abound more and more in knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and may be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. That might sound familiar. It is. That is Paul's prayer for the Philippians and subsequently Jason's prayer for y'all. Been praying it for weeks and weeks and weeks. That your love, your love for God and for people made in God's image would abound, would grow, would flourish more and more. That we would truly approve that which is excellent and then act excellently. That is, with the fruit of the righteousness of Jesus Christ toward others. So let's pray. Oh God, May our love abound more and more. Fill us, God, with your love. Overflow us with your love. Love for you and love for those made in your image. May you do this in knowledge. Give us knowledge to love more. And give us discernment to know how to love. That we may approve what is excellent and be filled with your fruits of righteousness. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. God, fill us. Fill us with those fruits. Fill us with your love. In Jesus' name. Amen. So when we introduced the concept of standing firm at the beginning of the year, many of us had ideas instantly pop into our heads as to what that standing firm would be against or in the midst of. After all, uh, we find ourselves in a culture where we are seemingly experiencing an all-out assault against the truths of Scripture and the gospel um, itself. The attack has seemed to be focused on two fronts, the truth of Christianity and the reputation of Christians. Now, that second front, the reputation of Christians, is a bit tricksy, isn't it? After all, what we mean when we claim to be a Christian is vastly different from what or how the world would define Christian. Their definition would be inclusive of the Westboro Baptists, 
the name it and claim it, money worshiping televangelists, abortion clinic, clinic bombers, slave owners, lynch mobbers, the Salem witch hunters, and the crusaders, just to name a few. Many view Christians as being among the worst perpetrators of injustice and violators of human rights. And guess what? They'd be right that there are many people who have claimed to be Christian over the years who are indeed those perpetrators. So how do we defend against that? They, they, they claim to be Christian. They did. Well, we don't. Do we? We do not stand in a name, in our name, in a moniker, in a title. We do not stand in that. What do we stand in? We stand in Christ, in Christ crucified. We stand in the assurance of Christ, not some title. That is where we stand. Now, many would probably identify that much of the battle seems to revolve around issues such as social justice and human rights. Um, issues such as racism, misogyny, sexual and physical abuse, spiritual abuse, abortion, homosexuality, and transgenderism. A large number of movements have arisen attempting to address these issues. Some of them Christian, some of them secular. Some fighting against real societal evils and others seeking power to create new ones. For many of these movements, it seems to be a mixture of both biblical and unbiblical ideas and solutions, with the unbiblical ideas and solutions often subverting the truth, increasing falsehood, and escalating evil. So how are we to assess and interact with these issues and the movements attempting to address them? How are we to know how to stand firm against what is wrong while simultaneously standing firm in what is right? What does it look like for us to stand firm? Several months ago, as we were trying to figure out how we might be able to address these issues and the movements surrounding them in our sermons, I was thinking about all of the details and nuances within each of these movements. There are a thousand and one nuances to a thousand and one points with a thousand and one definitions of each of these social justice movements. If I were to ask a hundred people in this room, or however many are in here, to define any one of these movements, I would undoubtedly hear 1,001 different definitions from a hundred people. Because most of the time, we don't even know what we mean when we're thinking or talking about them. So, how do we address some monstrosity like that? Well, I thought to myself that there had to be a better way. That perhaps there are some common elements or ingredients to each of these issues, ideas or concepts that each of them shares. Kind of like even though there are many cakes and frostings, make you all hungry, I haven't eaten breakfast either, they typically all have the same ingredients. And if there are, if there are universal ingredients, concepts foundational to every social justice movement cake, 
And if we can understand these fundamental ingredients from a biblical perspective, then no matter what the definition, the point, the nuance, past, present, or future, we will be able to discern the areas of agreement and disagreement, truths to be affirmed and falsehoods to be corrected. Seemed like a good idea. So I took it to the elder meeting and I said, hey, here's my idea. And they went, that is a great idea. You're hired. (laughs) I wasn't meaning that I wanted to do it. Isn't it enough just to come up with the idea and then to expect someone else to do the work? Everybody say, yeah. (laughs) Bad philosophy of ministry. And so I spent the next several months reading dozens upon dozens of books and articles and listening to podcasts, analyzing these issues, reviewing, looking at the movements. And so these three sermons, upcoming sermons this week and the next two, are the product of that research. So I want to be clear about something, if I wasn't from what I've just said. I want to make clear to you what you will hear and what you will not hear over the next three weeks. You will not hear a broad-brushed, far-reaching, all-inclusive condemnation of all or certain social justice movements or proponents. Nor will you hear me attempt to identify every particular or potential falsehood within any or all of these movements. Oh, man. What you will hear are a handful of biblical concepts that apply directly to every social justice issue by which you will then be able to assess, analyze, and discern what is right and what is wrong within any movement, in any culture, in any age, past, present, or future. That's the idea. Because new ones are coming down the road, folks. We need to be able to discern. How do we discern? The scriptures. So, in attempting to discern the common elements of social justice issues, three predominant concepts emerged. People, love, and justice. People, love, and justice. They all talk about those. You see, social justice issues are not just issues because they involve people. I know, that's a difficult task. Difficult concept, but yes, they involve people. They're not just issues. They are about love, care, compassion, and just treatment for people. The nature of people, the rights of people, and how people should treat one another. Homosexuality is not just an issue. It involves people who are made in the image of God. Racism and critical race theory are not simply issues because they involve people made in the image of God. Abortion and abortion rights are not just issues to be discussed because they involve women and preborn babies. Slavery and human trafficking are about what? People. All of this is about caring for and interacting with people. How to love people. That is how these modern social justice movements have gained their popularity and following. Because they have made 
that appeal, the appeal to the concept of loving people. So if you were to reduce social justice movements, their cake down to the basic ingredients and boil it down, it would be, they would say, it's about loving people. Indeed. Would anyone in here say that it is a bad or unbiblical idea to love people? Well, if you've known me for any amount of time, you know that this is not a straightforward question, is it? Hmm. We should answer this question with another question. What's that question? What do you mean by loving people? What do you mean by loving people? You see, a qualifier needs to be added to this phrase, to this statement. That is the word truly. Truly. We must love people truly, rightly, genuinely, or in other words, biblically. The problem with many of these movements is that they have resorted to unbiblical ideas of and solutions for loving people. We must have all three concepts working together. We must understand both love and people truthfully from a biblical perspective. Otherwise, we will not love people rightly, truly. As it says in 1 John 3.18, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And so, that is where we are heading over the next several weeks. The only way that we can truly love people indeed is if we have knowledge and discernment of the truth. That is, if we understand love truly and people truly. So this week is about people. We are looking at the people facet. If people are central to understanding and approaching these issues, then we must understand why people are important. I mean, are people really important? Are, are all people important? Why? Do, do they have inherent dignity and worth? Do they all have inherent dignity and worth? Are they really deserving of love and justice? All of them? If so, why? I'll give you the, the answer to the question first so that you know where we are going. Yes! There you go. Amen. See you next week. People, all people are important. They are important because they are created in the image of God. This morning, my aim is to help us better understand what the image of God is and why it is the sole reason that all people have intrinsic dignity and therefore any human rights. And to demonstrate that if people do not have intrinsic value, then there is no use in discussing or appealing to the ideas of love or justice concerning them. Love and justice are only useful and beneficial if people actually have worth. Does that make sense? Everybody nod their head. Unless it doesn't, then don't. You see, a significant problem 
within many of these movements is that they attempt to promote and defend the worth of people outside of the only truth that can establish the worth of people. Put that in your notes. They attempt to promote and defend the worth of people outside of the only truth that can establish the worth of people. You see, every social justice movement presupposes the idea of inherent human dignity as the foundation of its social platform of human rights. The intrinsic worth and value of all people as the basis of fair and equal treatment. But where do they get this idea of intrinsic worth from? That all humans are created equal. Is it just a a warm, fuzzy feeling or sense? Or is it something more substantial than that? Well, in the 1940s, late 1940s, as the world was reeling from the horrors of the Second World War and seeking to never again relive the horrific crimes against humanity that they did during that time, the United Nations ratified what was called the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. The declaration opens this way. Whereas recognition of the inherent dignity and of the equal and inalienable rights of all members of the human family is the foundation of freedom, justice, and peace in the world. It then, that's, that's like the prelude, what do they call that, prologue. And then the first article starts with this. It reiterates the truth. All human beings are born free and equal in dignity and rights without distinction of any kind as, as a, such as color and race and sex and language and religion and political or other opinion, national or social origin, property, birth, or other status. So, these framers believed the foundational concept of human rights is the recognition of the inherent dignity of all people. All right. But it doesn't answer to the question, does it? Why? Where did they get this idea from? That all human beings are born equal in dignity and that they have equal dignity or any dignity at all. How do they know? It is, is it this document that gives them dignity? Does the UN give humans dignity? So no one had dignity before 1948? Who gave them permission to do this? Why do they have the power or authority to give dignity? And what if the UN someday ceases to be? Hmm. Does human dignity continue? Or does it cease to exist when the UN or its declaration ceases to exist? If human dignity can be given by a human organization, then can't it be taken away by a human organization? Do you see the problem? If human dignity is conferred by humans, then it can be removed by humans. If it is granted, then there was a point in time when it was not granted, which means no humans had dignity before that point in time, which would mean that the Nazis were justified in their view and treatment of the Jewish people since they didn't have dignity before 1948. Do you see the problem? If human dignity is merely the product of a human or group of humans arbitrarily deciding that they are dignified, then human dignity is a fraud. 
It's fictional, folks. It is simply the preference, the decision of a group of humans. And if some specific group can decide who has dignity, then can't they also decide that their group or whatever group they prefer has more dignity, more worthiness than other people? Do you smell what I'm stepping in? In such an instance, human dignity is not absolute, but it's simply a just because. That is what someone decided at some point in time. A product of feelings and imaginations. It's not intrinsic, but a human convention. Invented, made up by people, for people. And what happens when people get to decide who does and does not have dignity? It's funny, as I'm looking at my notes here, it actually, I misspelled it and said, who dies and does not have dignity? Hmm. Let's look at history. Needless to say, if human rights are contingent upon equal human dignity and human dignity is just made up, then humans are also, human rights are also made up. So whoever wields the proverbial biggest stick gets to determine human dignity and human rights. Since Hitler had the biggest stick in the 1940s, he got to decide the rights of the Jewish people. Hmm. Currently, the UN has the biggest stick. So they got to make the declaration. Woohoo! Until they don't have the biggest stick anymore. Then what happens? Is human dignity really so fickle? An imagined attribute that can be given and taken away at the whim of those who are in power? Everybody say, no. You see, the only thing that gives any legitimacy to intrinsic human dignity is if there is an absolute, inalterable, fundamental basis of human dignity some absolute, inalterable truth beyond human opinion that decrees that all human beings are born equal in dignity. The appeal to human dignity must be to something outside of human beings. So, can we appeal to some kind of impersonal, unintelligent, natural force to substantiate this idea? That is a naturalistic approach that human beings are the unintended consequence of time plus matter plus chance? Well, the answer's in the question, isn't it? If human beings are unintended and are simply the product of impersonal, unintelligent natural forces, then they are of no more or less value than anything else in the entirety of the natural universe. It's a naturalistic universe. We are the unintended product of evolution the same way that pond scum and bile and rocks are. We're not. Evolution did not have intention. It is not intelligent or intentional. Therefore, we have no greater or lesser intrinsic value than pond scum, bile, rocks, or anything else. It's survival of the fittest, baby. Woohoo! Whoever's strongest gets to win and gets to define. As Richard Dawkins so well says, whoever heard that thing, 
from church. There is no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. In a naturalistic world, there is no intrinsic dignity to anything. This isn't to say that naturalists don't believe in human dignity and human rights. Most of them do. It's just that they have no justification from within their belief system to account for human dignity or human rights. They believe in human rights contrary to their belief system and, well, just need to be content with their inconsistencies. So, if human dignity cannot have a human or a natural origin, it must have a supernatural origin. If humans have dignity, then they have derived that dignity from a supernatural creator. The writers of the U.S. Constitution seem to understand this when they wrote, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. The signers understood that the Constitution did not give people dignity and rights, but recognized that their dignity and rights were endowed by their Creator. Which begs the question, who or what is this Creator? And has that being really endowed human beings with intrinsic value and unalienable rights? Some might take the agnostic slant and say that we cannot know who or what that creator is. But if we cannot know or have not yet discovered this creator, then how in the world could we possibly know if humans have been given any intrinsic dignity or rights by this creator? You couldn't, could you? You'd have to know something about the creator in order to know if the creator did this thing. The agnostic's approach is the same as the naturalist's. There is no justification whatsoever for human dignity. So, of those known religious systems, do any of them teach that humankind has been intentionally created by a creator with intrinsic dignity? You won't find it in Islam, animism, Buddhism, Hinduism, But there is one, and only one, text that does teach this. The Bible. Outside of the teachings of the Bible, there is no other religious text that provides us with a justifiable basis for human dignity and equality. Now, I know you all probably came going, come on, we know where you're going. We know this is going to end up at the the Bible, yes. Yes, that's where we're going to end up. That's where we're, we're going to. But I wanted to make sure that you understood that it is the Bible alone that gives us any possibility of, of equal, intrinsic human dignity and therefore of having any kind of unalienable rights. So the teaching in the Bible that states this truth is called the Imago Dei. That is Latin for the image of God. The concept of the Imago Dei first appears in the first chapter of the first book of the Bible. That's a good start. 
Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. So there's quite a bit that we can learn about humankind from this passage. First, it's obvious from the passage that, well, we're created in the image of God. But what does that mean? How do we learn about the dignity of human beings from this statement? Well, if man is created in the image of God and derives their worth from that image, we get our image from, we, we get our importance from the image of God, then it would seem important to understand what God is like. So let's begin there. What can we learn about God here in order to understand what it means to be created in God's image? The passage begins with the statement, then God said. This is our first point of understanding. God says something. Implicit within such a simple phrase are several key truths. Number one, God is volitional. God here decides to speak. He acts. He shows intent. He shows volition. The phrase also indicates intelligence by God speaking. You ever hear anybody speak who didn't have intelligence? The rock. Yes. The bottle. Come on. You can do it. He has language and uses that language intelligently. God is also creative. He says, let us make man. He takes that which is not and creates something from out of his creativity called human beings. Next, I want you to observe how God says this. He says, let us make man. Us is a plural pronoun. God is speaking to or with others. So who is the us? From the rest of the Bible, we understand that the us here is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, dialoguing with one another. This one God is three persons, one what and three who's. From this biblical truth, we derive a handful of other aspects of the nature of God. You will find far more detailed things than I'm about to give you in your notes, um, there should be a sheet in there, hopefully. What do we learn? Well, God is personal from this. There are three persons with individual identity and personality, and these persons interact and communicate personally with one another. God is loving. The relationship between the three persons of the Trinity has existed in perfect, undiluted love for one another from all of eternity. Love originates in the triune Godhead and their relationships. As John says, God is love. And that love is from God. He is its essence, apex, origin, and source. We also see that each of the persons of the Godhead are truly God. They are not partially God, a fraction of God, but are each truly divine in essence. Since each person is truly God, they are by nature equal to one another, in essence, dignity, and worth. 
Hopefully you guys kind of see where this is going before I even get there. Though the individual persons of the Godhead are equal in essence and dignity, there is a functional hierarchical, say that five times fast, hierarchical order of positions and differing operations assumed by each of these persons in human history. So why did I just go to such lengths to help us better understand these aspects of God's nature? because it's foundational in understanding what it means to be created in the image of God and all that it entails. So let's head there now. We are told in the passage, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God imbued Adam and Eve with his image. They and all their progeny are his image bearers. As we read in chapter five of Genesis, when God created mankind, he made them in, his, in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them. And he named them mankind when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image. And he named him Seth and had other sons and daughters. This means that every human being including all y'all that has ever lived bears the Imago Dei since God made from one man, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Adam named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. Every human, male and female, every ethnicity, shade of skin, shape and size, nationality, everybody is a descendant of Adam and Eve and is therefore imbued with God's image made in his likeness. By the way, this status of being made in the image of God is unique to humanity. God didn't declare it about the rest of creation. Take a breath. So what does this mean? Well, as Wayne Grudem says, when God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness, the meaning is that God plans to make a creature similar to himself. Both the Hebrew word for image and the Hebrew word for likeness referred to something that is similar, but not identical to the thing it represents or is an image of. John Piper, he's so simple. Images are created to image. Thanks, John. If you create an image, if you draw a picture or make a sculpture of something, you do it to display something about that someone. God created us in his image so that we would display or reflect or communicate who he is, how great he is, and what he is like. Humanity was created similar but not identical to God in order to specially reflect who God is and what he is like. This is important to understand. As God's image bearers, we are similar to God in some ways and not identical to him because we are creatures and he is the creator. We are finite and he is infinite. We are contingent and he is self-sufficient. We are constrained by time and space while he is not. 
We are limited in knowledge. He is omniscient. We are restricted in strength while he is omnipotent. You get the point. These characteristics are unique to the one and only God. God and only God is like this. And yet, there are other characteristics of God that he could and did share with us. Traits of his image that he has shared with us that reflect or display what he is like. Humans, like God, are rational, able to reason, reason about things like what they are, why they are here, and whether or not they have inherent dignity and worth. We are also, like God, volitional beings. We are able to make moral choices. And like God, we're creative. Not that we can create something out of nothing, but that we can transform matter in different ways. We can make art like the Mona Lisa, music like Adagio for Strings, and movies like... Thank you. I am so disappointed in all y'all right now. And movies like... Thank you. Black Panther. (laughs) And there are also abundant similarities with God's triune nature. Humans, like the triune God, are personal, able to relate, interact with, and yes, love. Love God, ourselves, others, pets, and many other things. These are unique stamps of the Imago Dei in humanity. And like the triune God, though each human being is a different person, all human beings are truly human, utterly equal in essence, dignity, and worth. Think about it. God designed Adam and Eve's genetic makeup to produce the multitudes of physical traits that we observe in humanity all while still being fully human. Male and female, every shade of skin, every eye shape and body type, all bearing the same imago dei. None of our physical traits determines our status as human beings. None of our physical traits determines our status as human beings. Rather, those traits point to the wondrous handiwork of God in its amazing diversity while maintaining the unity of every individual's essence, worth, and dignity. Finally, am I, am I talking too fast for all, all y'all to write? Finally, just as there is a functional hierarchy within the Godhead, so there are to be functional hierarchies within human relationships. Employers and employees, husbands and wives, parents and children, elders and laity, God created within the human economy authorities and subordinates. And yet within these functional hierarchies, there is no difference in essence or dignity of anyone within that hierarchy. Fascinating. As Bill has said, it has nothing to do with the value or even the importance of things. In God's economy, no person in the position of authority is of any greater value or dignity or importance than a person in the position of subordination. Boy, if we couldn't just get that through our thick skulls. People are simply designated by God to occupy different positions and fulfill different functions to bring about God's intended purpose for both the system and those within it. Whoa! God's that cool? Yeah, God's that cool! 
personhood, rationality, volition, creativity, unity, and equality of essence, diversity of physical traits and functional roles. These are all aspects of the image and likeness of God that has been imprinted on every human being. We reflect the glory of our creator. From the creation of Adam and Eve, this image is emblazoned upon and woven into the fiber of every human being who has ever lived. What is mankind that you are mindful of them? Ask the psalmist. Human beings that you care for them? You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. Wow. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet. This then is the origin of human dignity. From the very first human being to the very last, we all possess the inherent, intrinsic, imprinted image of God. I know it took a long time to get there. I wanted you guys to get it, to understand it, to hold it. Because this is our measuring stick or one of them. This is the basis of our worth, the foundation of our value, the source of our importance, the substance of our significance. This truth and this truth alone then underlie any and all appeals to human rights. We have rights as human beings because we are created specially by God and bear his magnificent image. Human dignity and equality are solely biblical concepts. That's what I've been building. I've been building. They are solely biblical concepts. If the Bible is not true, there is no fundamental basis upon which to believe in human equality or human dignity and therefore in human rights. But again, that doesn't mean that people don't believe in them. They all do, or most of them. It's just that they have no basis for believing in them because they reject the biblical God and his teachings. What we need to realize at this point is that everyone who appeals to human dignity and human rights is standing firmly upon the Bible to do so, whether they recognize it or not. That one's worth repeating. Everyone who appeals to human dignity and human rights is standing firmly upon the Bible to do so, whether they like it or recognize it or not. This is essential to understand. Therefore, since it is God who endows every human being with inherent dignity, it is also God that gets to define human rights. You see how that works? He alone has the prerogative to declare which lifestyle choices are good, righteous, and pleasing to him who created us in his image, as well as those that are evil, unrighteous, and displeasing to him. So, whenever someone appeals to the equality and legitimacy of human dignity, we should passionately affirm these principles and immediately point them to the reason that we and they should believe in human dignity. Yes, it's a biblical truth. Right on, well done. We agree with them because it's what the Bible alone teaches. Not only are we standing firm then 
on what the Bible teaches, but guess who else is at that point? They're standing on the Bible too. Hey, that's always a good thing when you get the opponent to step onto your side. And then we should continue declaring that since the Bible is what informs us as to the true dignity and worth of human beings, it is to the Bible that we also must turn to understand human rights. Everybody, here's another air one, everybody wants to declare what they think human rights are or what they want them to be. But human rights, just like human dignity, are given by God. Not by other humans. The rights that we have were rights that were given to us by God when he created us in his image. So it is to the Bible, not to human reasonings, imaginations, inventions, or declarations that we must turn to understand what our rights and the rights of every human being created in the image of God are. It is God who endowed us with dignity and it is God who endows us with unalienable rights. Just because the Imago Dei gives every human being equal dignity and worth, it does not therefore give everyone the right to do whatever they want to do. It's the exact opposite. You see how this works? It is because they are created in the image of God that they are therefore accountable to walk according to God's commands and rules. We're not free to cling to his image in us and then turn to our own dictates when we want to. It's either all or nothing. We're either created in his image and thereby endowed with the rights which he provides or we're not created in his image and we have no rights whatsoever. True justice. Real social and societal justice can only occur within the confines and dictates of the Bible. Any and every attempt to place one's identity, dignity, or rights outside of the dictates and principles of Scripture ultimately fails, for they have no foundation on which to stand. It's like I said at the beginning, they attempt to promote and defend the worth of people outside of the only truth that can establish the worth of people. Women's lives matter, not because of their gender, but because they are created in the image of God. Blacks' lives matter, not because of the shade of their skin, but because they are created in the image of God. Jewish lives matter, not because of their nationality or their ethnicity, but because they are created in the image of God. Homosexuals and transgenders' lives matter, not because of their sexual orientation, but because they are created in the image of God. Babies' lives matter, not because of their age, size, or level of dependence, but because they are created in the image of God. This alone gives anyone and everyone the right to life. We as Christians ought to be the most vocal of all people about the intrinsic worth and dignity of people and therefore of human rights. 
Why? Because we have a reason for them. And we ultimately know that God created human beings in his image. We know that all people, male and female, every shade, size, shape, are image bearers created by God and are therefore of inestimable worth. And we ought to be vocal about the dignity of all people. Also because Jesus died to make a people, male and female, of every shade, size, and shape for himself. You were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. The goal of this morning's message has been to simply point this truth out. The Imago Dei is a foundational principle in standing firm and in assessing any social justice teaching. When some of these movements attempt to create a person's identity apart from the image of God, they create false identities. When they appeal to the equality of all people apart from the very thing that makes all people equal, they're bound to fail. Here's a principle for you. It's in your notes. To the degree that any issue, teaching, or movement either recognizes or aligns with this biblical concept, to that degree, we ought to agree with and validate that biblical concept. And to the degree that any issue, teaching, or movement deviates from this biblical truth or other biblical truths is the degree to which we should question their claims and attempt to lead their advocates to the truth. This is the discernment piece which Paul spoke of, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and discernment so that we may approve of that which is excellent. In this discernment, both the affirmation and the correction are necessary. I just gave two things. To the degree that it affirms, we should affirm. To the degree that it doesn't, we should correct. Both are necessary. This is where so much of the trouble has arisen. Either our love has failed to be discerning, or after discerning truth and falsehood, we have failed to affirm the truth to affirm that which is excellent, to affirm those things which do indeed recognize the image of God in people. Affirm those things. Those are biblical. Yes, the Bible teaches it. Yes. And only the Bible teaches it. And so, use the Imago Dei as a tool, a measuring stick by which to assess the claims of others and as a platform to declare truth. So some examples. Feminists often claim that women are just as important and valuable as men. Yes! They are! We ought to agree. God created them male and female in his image. 
We are created equal, therefore have equal dignity, value, and worth. And then we should tell them why we agree. Don't just say, yeah, here's why. Here's why the very basis of this truth of your claim is found in scripture alone. The only reason for believing that men and women are equal in value and dignity is because God created them that way. And yet, many feminists would go on to claim that they should have the right to take the life of an unborn child at their discretion while relying on the Bible for their own inherent dignity and humanity, they then reject the inherent dignity and humanity of the unborn baby girl or boy in the womb. This inconsistency must be pointed out. Either every human being has inherent dignity and worth because they're created in the image of God, or none of them do, including you. If they would refuse an unborn child's right to life, in so doing, they are unconsciously undermining their own right to life or to any rights whatsoever. Another example. Critical race theory proponents would say that treating others as inferior based upon physical traits like skin color is evil. That showing prejudice against anyone based upon their physical characteristics is wicked. Yes, I agree because the Bible says so because of the Imago Dei. It is wrong to show prejudice. It is wrong to think of yourself as superior and others as inferior based upon physical traits. And then we turn to them and say, do you know why? I can tell you why. You can ask them, why do you think so? And you can go through everything that I just went through. There is no possibility apart from scripture. The Imago Dei is why. And yet some within that very same movement, indeed in the very same breath, would actually promote a new form of racism. Showing prejudice against people based upon their physical characteristics. Particularly, the color of their skin. Some would even say you are a racist and oppressor based not on your actions, but solely on the color of your skin, which is a racist statement. No! Such thinking must be corrected. It thoroughly contradicts the truth of the Imago Dei that we have been seeing this morning. We must stand firm on the truth that all people are created in the image of God and not fall into anti-biblical concepts that lump people into tribes or races based upon physical characteristics. These distortions occur in almost all secular social justice movements. They attempt to identify the worth or value of an individual by some internal or external trait, by their gender, skin color, class, or sexual orientation. But why are women just as valuable as men? Why are blacks just as valuable as whites? 
homosexuals just as valuable as heterosexuals, the poor just as valuable as the rich, the unborn children just as as valuable as adults, Chinese just as important as Americans, the disabled just as valuable as the able-bodied. If we base someone's identity on any interior or exterior trait, preference, or self-ascribed orientation, rather than upon the intrinsic dignity endowed by their creator, then their identity is worthless. At that moment, they have been dehumanized. Do you see how that works? We dehumanize them by trying to attribute their worth to something other than their humanity, which is by the image of God. The degree to which any teaching or movement deviates from the Imago Dei is the degree to which they dehumanize those they claim to represent. No characteristic or traits merits worth. All worth is intrinsic because it is in the image of God. One more example of holding up beliefs to the truth of the Imago Dei. And this should have been the first one that I mentioned. You. You. It's all well and good that we should hold others accountable to biblical standards. But if we don't hold ourselves to those same standards, then we're worse than hypocrites. It's easy and gratifying to hold others to these standards, but much harder and more uncomfortable to subject ourselves to these same principles. So, to what degree do your thoughts, our thoughts, my thoughts, emotions, beliefs, and behaviors align with or deviate from the truth of the Imago Dei? Do you harbor any prejudice against anyone based on exterior traits? Do you have an aversion to, feel uncomfortable around, or cringe at the thought of someone or some kind of person? Do you treat anyone differently? differently? View them as inferior to yourself or others? Do you dehumanize or de-imagize them because of the way they look or act? We must begin with examining ourselves, our hearts, our thoughts. We need to ask God to reveal anything that is within us that is violating this wonderful truth if we are to hope to have any kind of impact in communicating these truths to others. So I want you to write these questions. These questions did not get written down in your notes. But these are the ones that really need to be discussed at care group. What degree do your thoughts, emotions, beliefs, 
and behaviors align with or deviate from the glorious truth of the Imago Dei. Ask God to examine your hearts. If we want to impact others, we must begin with ourselves. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you that you have created us, that we bear your image, that we are all equal, that we all reflect you. God, examine our hearts. Show us any way in which we need to change. Any corrections we need to make. And open up opportunities, God, to share this glorious truth. The truth of the Imago Dei. The truth of the redemption of mankind in Jesus Christ with others. Give us that opportunity, God. May our love abound more and more in knowledge and all discernment that we would approve what is excellent and so be filled with the fruit of the righteousness of Christ to the glory of God. Amen.